an anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. I give you Super Train. Episode 432, Submission 1616, The Frank Reynolds Centennial. Now, just to be clear here, we're not talking about the Frank Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. This Frank Reynolds never went to Risky Rats Pizza, as far as I know. So he didn't do it, do it, do it, do whatever you want. No. No, we're talking about the Frank Reynolds, the journalist. Now, today, November 29th, 2023, when this is being released on our Podbean feed, is the 100th anniversary of Frank Reynolds' birth. Now, a lot of you people are probably way too young to remember Frank Reynolds. Now, I myself was born in 1984, a year after he passed away. Now, Chico, you were born in 1980. Right. So you were three when he passed away. Now, Mike, you were eight when he passed away, correct? That is correct. Do you have any like memory of him on World News tonight? No, I can't say that I have a memory of Frank Reynolds, even though my family has been a World News Tonight family for decades, up until and even after Peter Jennings passed away. So, let's get into the story of Frank Reynolds. Frank was born in East Chicago, Indiana. And today I learned that there's a town in Indiana called East Chicago. You didn't know that? No. It's like right near Gary. It's literally like just over the border. Okay. So Frank, after attending Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana, served in the United States Army during World War II, where he was a staff sergeant E-6 in the infantry and was awarded a Purple Heart. That's fantastic. Now, after the war, Frank would begin his broadcasting career in Indiana on WWCA AM in Gary and also worked at WJOB AM in Hammond, Indiana. Frank ended up as a television anchor in Chicago on WBKB in 1949, which became WBBM-TV a few years later and was a CBS-owned and operated station. He would then serve as the Chicago correspondent at CBS, and in 1963, he moved to the second WBKB, which was an ABC-owned and operated station. Now, you might know this station today, guys, as WLS-TV Channel 7. WLS. And only two years later, Frank would join ABC News as a correspondent. One of Frank's earliest interviews that is on YouTube is from 1965 with Sergeant Shriver 
and it's actually on the official YouTube channel of the Peace Corps. So I'm going to play it for you right now. I'm Frank Reynolds, ABC News, Washington. On college campuses around the country these days, some blunt questions are being asked about the Peace Corps. Here to answer those questions is our Sergeant Shriver, director of the Peace Corps. Mr. Shriver, don't young Americans have enough to do here at home without going overseas? Well, some of them think that they do, but I think they're wrong. There's really only uh, one problem facing the world today, and that's the problem of poverty and disease and ignorance and hunger, whether it's in the United States or overseas. And there's a great similarity between these problems within the United States and overseas. And consequently, whether a person's working for civil rights or to combat disease and hunger here at home or abroad is irrelevant. The big thing is to be doing it someplace. Most people aren't doing anything anywhere. So you see no conflict then between the recruitment program for the Peace Corps and other uh, agencies trying to do something about social conditions at home? None whatsoever. I would say that at a minimum, 50% of the people who graduate from college today don't do anything either abroad or at home along these lines. They go off into business, they get married, they go into professional school, graduate school, and so on. But they don't get involved in the pressing problems, the uh, problems which are causing revolutions in Panama or Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, or out in uh, Vietnam or elsewhere. They don't get involved in those issues either at home or abroad. Why should they? because these are the problems that are going to control the future that they're going to live in, the world in which they're going to live. A lot of people think that they can be uh, successful and prosperous on an island of security all of their own, that they're going to be able to accumulate a lot of money or something like that and be happy and contented at home. I think they're dead wrong. And they might have been able to do that 50 or 100 years ago, but the world is so small now that it's no longer going to be possible for a few people to be very, very wealthy, uh, whereas 90% uh, of the people are poor. And in fact, I think the riots in Watts in Los Angeles, Watts District of Los Angeles last summer, did serve one useful purpose. They suddenly shocked lots of Americans into the realization that there are serious problems here at home that need attention right now. That just because a suburb, for example, looks nice, because there's a little bit of grass in front of the house and somebody's got a water sprinkler twisting around Saturday afternoon. That does not mean that everything's fine in, in what? You know, a lot of Americans are sort of beguiled by a palm tree. If there's a palm tree waving, everything's got to be great. It isn't true. It isn't true in Florida or Los Angeles, and it isn't true in tropical Africa or Latin America. Do you have a Peace Corps recruitment problem right now? We don't have a problem, except insofar as there's a tremendous need for Peace Corps volunteers. When I say that, there's a demand uh, from overseas, from foreign countries, for twice as many volunteers as we're able to send. Now, I believe in keeping the quality of the volunteers as high as possible. So I would uh, quickly point out they probably never will be able to meet the demand. But the opportunities for Peace Corps volunteers are tremendous, and the opportunities for our country are tremendous. Because very rarely has any nation been given the chances that the United States is being given through the Peace Corps. So by 1968, Frank became the co-anchor of the ABC Evening Newscast with Howard K. Smith. Now, guys, you got to note, NBC had Brinkley and Huntley, and CBS had Walter Cronkite. 
ABC was like struggling in the news department at like seven o'clock back then. In fact, back in like around like 66 or 67, they had this kid from Canada by the age of 25 and he did not do too well in the evening news. So they had to shuffle him out to be a foreign correspondent for ABC News. But you'll find out more about that man a bit later. So around 1968, by the time Frank Reynolds is becoming the co-anchor with Howard K. Smith on the ABC Evening News, we've got this really funky promo covering all the news in 1968 that ABC is going to cover. a year. It's our job to see that you don't miss it. ABC News. Nineteen sixty-eight. It's going to be quite a year. That's the understatement of the century, guy. And also in 1968, Frank was a part of a panel show on ABC called Issues and Answers, which also features a very young Sam Donaldson on this show. It's funny, whenever I picture Sam Donaldson, he's always like 50 years old in my mind. From Los Angeles, California, and New York City, the American Broadcasting Company brings you an hour-long special edition of the award-winning interview program, Issues and Answers. The candidates in the important California primary next Tuesday, June 6th, will be interviewed by ABC News Capitol Hill correspondent Sam Donaldson, ABC News correspondent Bill Matney, and ABC News special correspondent Frank Reynolds. I want to welcome uh, each of you and all of you to this special edition of uh, Issues and Answers. We have tried to be, uh, to be fair and equal in uh, the distribution of time here. I'm not sure that we've succeeded completely, but uh, it's been interesting, and we have been very pleased to have you, all of you, this crowd on ABC's Issues and Answers today. For Sam Donaldson and Bill Matney, this is Frank Reynolds in Los Angeles. Thank you. Can't help but notice that Sam Donaldson still has that very square jawline, though. And maybe it's just me, but that was like the emptiest set ever. You had the sign, you had the seven people in the chairs, you had a rug right there, and that's it. Well, TV wasn't as busy that time. Well, but the thing is, it looks like you're filming in somebody's basement, essentially, 
not necessarily maybe a basement, but just an empty area, you could have like, you know, fake bookshelves in the background or you could make it busier, but that looked, for lack of a better phrase, like a public access production. Well, to be fair, Mike, there was no such thing as public access in 1968, so they would have no idea. I get that. Maybe this was the inspiration for every public access show ever. Well, it was also ABC, and let's remember that they were third place at this point. They were essentially the new kid on the block compared to NBC and CBS. So maybe their budget just wasn't in it. They just had no money for anything. Maybe they just didn't have the money for anything quasi-extravagant, if you will. They were just giving all the money to Bewitched. That money had to go to pay Elizabeth Montgomery's contract somehow. And you know, if you had Elizabeth Montgomery, some of it had to go to Paul Lynn, too. He was Uncle Arthur. Okay, but I would be remiss that they talk in that clip about the California primary on June 6th. And it's 1968, and you obviously know what happens on June 6th, 1968, the day of the Cal. Well, the night of the California primary. And that was, of course, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So, yes. Tragic day. Very tragic. So, I should mention that at the time we're recording this, it's November 24th, 2023. Two days after the 60th anniversary of the death of John F. Kennedy. Now... For his commentary on the ABC Evening News on November 22nd, 1968, the fifth anniversary of JFK's death, Frank recorded this commentary on the fifth anniversary and kind of rings true today in 2023, even though it's 55 years apart. So I'll just play it right here. Five years ago today, the pain, the hurt, the outrage, all flood back. And that's the way it ought to be. Time may smooth the rough edges of sorrow, but it does nothing to diminish the depth of the loss this country sustained five years ago. There is certainly no need to worry that the memory of this young man will fade, even though there are children alive now who know him only as Bobby's brother, who also was shot. That's the way one five-year-old described him to me last June. The steady line of patient people moving through the hills of Arlington, however, every day, rain or shine, leave no doubt that John Kennedy's eternal flame burns as brightly now as ever and will, hopefully, for generations to come. Five years does make possible an unemotional appraisal of his presidency, and it must be said there are those who find it unimpressive in certain respects. His thousand days produced no great tide of landmark legislation. The Congress was not receptive to all his ideas. But the effectiveness of a presidency, as indeed of a life, cannot be measured solely in charts and graphs of things done and not done. And I sometimes think that President Kennedy's greatest gift to his country was a sense of concern, of involvement, he was, above all, the unremitting, untiring enemy of apathy. This same intolerance of indolence, this unwillingness to settle for the status quo, 
was certainly the hallmark of Robert Kennedy's life, especially after November of 1963. As always, we honor them both best by emulating their best. And that was not to be found in their style or grace or wit, but in their concern and compassion. Mrs. Frank Reynolds. Just one of those moments in time that is no less true 55 years from when it was uttered than it was when it was uttered the first time. Later on in 1968, Frank would be at the anchor desk for the Apollo 8 mission from when they orbited the Earth. Now, I'm going to play some clips of Frank from the various missions from the Apollo program from an ABC News videotape back in the late 1980s regarding the history of the Apollo program. So, right now, I'm going to start by playing some clips from the Apollo 8 mission on ABC. Apollo 8 is now more than 120,000 nautical miles out into space, and the mission has been underway for 31 hours, 9 minutes, and 35 seconds. And we're standing by here, Frank. I think the first TV pictures are beginning to come through from Apollo Well, 8. we should get them very shortly, and that, right. of course, is the reason we're on right now right. in order to bring these pictures. Here they are. There goes the first TV from Apollo 8, 123,000 miles out in space. That's Frank Borman in the center of our picture right there, Frank. This transmission is coming to you approximately halfway between the moon and the Earth. We've been uh, 31 hours, about 20 minutes into the flight. We have about uh, less than 40 hours left to go to the moon. You can see Bill's got his toothbrush here. He's been brushing his teeth regularly to demonstrate how things float around zero G. Like place for the astronauts, the way he tries to catch this. <laughs> I certainly wish we could uh, show you the Earth. It's a beautiful, beautiful view with uh, predominantly blue background and uh, just huge covers of uh, white clouds. And tonight, the crew of Apollo 8 presents a Christmas Eve program from the heavens. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. 
And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. God bless them. Unbelievable. That was the Copernicus crater and some of what? Three good men. And next here is some clips of Frank anchoring the coverage of Apollo 10. But they are now down to uh, 50,000 feet above the surface of the moon and we can tell just by uh, by listening to them that uh, they are seeing these uh, truly spectacular and fantastic sights and they seem quite excited as they as they move along closer to the surface of the moon than man ever has been before. About a minute away now from uh, the Paracynthion, uh, the lowest altitude at which they will be relative to the moon. Right. Right. After passing Lunar Landing Site 1, as uh, Snoopy has just done, that's John Young in the command module. After passing Lunar Landing Site 1, they're coming up on Lunar Landing Site 2. If you read to have Snoopy tweak up the high gain, we're not reading him at all, over. They're coming up on Lunar Landing Site 2, the prime landing site for America's first in the manned lunar landing in July. If all goes well on the rest of this critical Apollo 10 mission, uh, then Apollo 11 will be launched on July 16th. It's due to land on the moon at, under present planning at 2.22 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the afternoon of July 20th, a great event in human history. And since you couldn't see it, from the audio clips. I should note that what Frank and Jules Bergman were watching in the studio at ABC were these videotape clips from the ship of Apollo 10 with the caption, as seen on videotape by the crew of Apollo 10. And I gotta say, for something being videotaped in 1969, on the surface of the moon, showing the surface of the moon. That is a pretty damn good technological feat for 1969, if I must say so myself. Before we get into the coverage of Apollo 11, I want to play this clip from the coverage of Apollo 11 with Frank talking about the life of Neil Armstrong as it all led to this very important historical moment in July of 1969. Neil Armstrong actually could fly a plane and was licensed to fly a plane before the state of Ohio legally authorized him to drive a car. On his 16th birthday, I believe it was, when he got his uh, pilot's license. And of course, uh, the most important flight of his career will take place this Sunday when he lands that lunar module on the moon and becomes the first man to walk on the moon. All the astronauts are experienced men, experienced at their line of work, you might say. None more so, really, than Neil Armstrong. He can fly just about anything that has wings. And his flight record is a long jumble of numbers and letters, like the X-15, the F-104, the B-47, the paraglider, the F-5D, and many others. When he was a boy in Wapakoneta, Ohio, he and a friend repaired a wrecked plane 
and Neil actually learned to fly it. You can see they're very proud of him there. During those late 30s and early 40s, he developed a love of flying that he has never lost. Armstrong left the small plane class in 1949, however, when after a couple of years at school at Purdue, he became a pilot in the United States Navy. He flew 78 combat missions during the Korean War. And after the war, Armstrong went back to school to receive his degree from Purdue. And in 1955, he became a test pilot for NASA's high-speed flight station at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And there he continued to add to his flight record that now shows he's had more than 4,000 hours flying time. In September of 1962, Neil Armstrong became an astronaut. He served as backup command pilot for Gemini 5 and then command pilot for the Gemini 8 mission. He was the first man to successfully dock two vehicles in space, but more importantly, he showed his coolness under fire. A malfunction caused the dock vehicles to pitch about wildly. Armstrong separated the Agena from the Gemini spacecraft, but the spinning uh, continued for, some, for him and for Dave Scott. Just seconds away from disaster, Armstrong found the cause of the spinning and stabilized the Gemini spacecraft. It was not the first nor the last demonstration by Neil Armstrong of his magnificent control of himself and whatever flying machine he happens to be piloting. And now he is in command of man's most historic flight to date. He is ready. And so here it is, Frank and Jules Bergman on July 20th, 1969, as it happened with the historic event as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And I should note that the video, if you watch it, because all the links from all the clips are going to be in the description in the capsule on our Podbean page. If you watch it, the simulations they do for the moon landing for ABC while it's going on is very technically impressive for the time. And it's over 50 years later, over 50 years later. And I think the effects and the simulations they did for this by ABC is very impressive, even today in 2023, considering no CGI... None of the fancy graphics or equipment we have today for trying to show the simulation people. It looks exactly like you would think or imagine how this was happening live at the time. So here we go with the coverage of the moon landing with Frank. Good day from ABC Space Headquarters in New York. It is July 20th, 1969, and man is about to land on the moon. Eagle will touch down approximately four hours and 17 minutes from now, if the flight plan as it is now established uh, goes forward as scheduled. With me is our science editor, Jules Bergman, and we will be here from now on for what uh, will be... Uh, Truly a historic time in the life of our country and in the existence of mankind. This is Apollo Control. That uh, separation maneuver was performed as scheduled, uh, giving the uh, command module a, a delta V of about 2.5 feet per second, uh, which should give a separation to the two vehicles of about uh, 1,100 feet at uh, the beginning of the descent orbit insertion maneuver. 
And go right down US 1, Mike. Thirty feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. Thirty feet, two and a half down, straight shadow. Four forward, four forward, drifting to the right a little. Down and a half. Thirty seconds. Forward, just. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, decent engine command, override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. I'm going to step off the limb now. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. So by 1970, Frank was replaced from the anchor desk at the ABC Evening News for Harry Reisner. And after the demotion, Frank returned to the field as correspondent for ABC. So I think I mentioned in a previous episode that Harry Reisner was teamed at one point with Barbara Walters on the evening news at ABC right after she got hired from NBC when she was on the Today Show. And it never worked between Harry Reisner and Barbara Walters. So at one point, Harry Reisner just decided, I'm just going to go back to CBS. So there was like this period for a while where Barbara Walters was kind of lost in the shuffle until she went to 2020. So right now, I'm going to play a commentary that Frank did for his final episode on the ABC Evening News before Harry Reasoner took over back in the late 1970. This is my last program as anchorman for the ABC Evening News. On Monday, Harry Reasoner, whom I respect personally and professionally, takes over, and I wish him well. The standard script on an occasion such as this calls for some breast beating about how wonderful it's all been and how much is owed to all the wonderful people who have made it possible. While I have too much respect for you to try to pass off such a large dose of hypocrisy all by itself. The truth is it has been wonderful at times. And of course there are many people who have made it possible and to whom I shall always be grateful. But I'm not going to suggest that I'm completely happy about what has happened to me, for it is also the truth that I don't like it one bit and see no reason to pretend that I do. Like most prisoners, I was put here against my will, and like most prisoners, I would prefer to pick my own time to leave. However, such matters are decided elsewhere, and I have no quarrel with the judgment that it is time for a change. I have given this assignment my best, and I'm sure my worst, so maybe we're even. I suppose I ought to say I hope I have not offended anyone in the last two and a half years, but that's not really the truth either, because there are a few people I did very much want to bother, and I hope I have. Mistakes have been made here, 
and for each one I am sorry. But as inadequate as most of us in this trade know we are, we also know that you have the right to expect at least honesty on this side of the box. And I leave now satisfied that I have given you that. For what is important is not that this program has meant almost everything to me, but that it may have meant something to you. I presume or dare to hope that it has. So there are no regrets here. I've had some grand times and some great fights, and I look forward to more of the same. One last privilege is mine. I can now be among the first to wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy and, pray God, a peaceful new year. This is Frank Reynolds. Thank you, and good night. But in comes Frank again, and in 1978, Rune Arledge, the visionary producer at ABC, who ran the sports division, was now in the news division, and he had this really hot concept. World News Tonight. Now, the way it worked was the initial idea of World News Tonight was they would have three different anchors anchoring from three different parts of the world. So you'd have Frank as your main anchor in Washington, D.C., you had Max Robinson in Chicago. And then in London, you had that 25-year-old kid who I told you got bumped off the ABC Evening News reporting from London in Peter Jennings. Two leading Russian dissidents go on trial amid worldwide protests. Secretary of State Vance says the trials will aggravate relations with Moscow, but the salt talks must continue. From ABC, this is World News Tonight, with Max Robinson in Chicago, Peter Jennings in London, Barbara Walters' special reports, and tonight a comment from Howard K. Smith, and from our Washington desk, Frank Reynolds. Good evening, and welcome to the first broadcast of the World News Tonight. Speaking for all the men and women of ABC News, I promise you an accurate, responsible, and meaningful report on events at home and abroad. We are aware of our responsibility to you, and we intend to meet it. Our major story tonight concerns brave men who dare to speak their minds. Their fate is now more than ever before bound up with the future of relations between the United States and the Soviet Union. Here is Peter Jennings in London. Frank, the men you're referring to went on trial in the Soviet Union today in cases almost certain to further strain Soviet-American relations. Alexander Ginsburg and Anatoly Sharansky are two of the Soviet Union's most prominent dissidents. Ginsburg is charged with anti-Soviet behavior. Sharansky is charged much more seriously with treason. Both men pleaded innocent. The trials are perhaps the most important political ones since the end of the Stalin era. Western reporting is severely limited. First, because no Western newsman is allowed to attend, and in our case, because a film report our correspondent delivered to Moscow airport never arrived here in the West. So this was kind of like a revolutionary concept. It's like you have three anchors reporting from three different locations. Yeah, I mean, it was unheard of. I mean, you know, Huntley and Brinkley 
one would be in Los Angeles, or one would be in New York, and one would be in Washington. Yeah, that was basically mind-blowing when they came out with that idea to conquer, uh, well, not to conquer, but to match wits with Walter Cronkite by himself. But three anchors. That's kind of like revolution and kind of high tech when you think about it with the way like satellite trucks and everything were working by like 1978, especially with Peter Jennings out in London doing his part of the news there. Because by that time, like Peter was one of the main foreign correspondents over at ABC. So prior to the most recent solar eclipse that we had back in 2017, Frank was at the news desk for the previous solar eclipse we had in 1979. So here's some coverage of that. Well, that's it. The last solar eclipse to be seen on this continent in this century. And as I said, not until August 21st, 2017, will another eclipse be visible from North America. That's 38 years from now. May the shadow of the moon fall in a world at peace. And ABC News, of course, will bring you a complete report on that next eclipse 38 years from now. I want to thank everybody involved in this magnificent undertaking. It's been just great. We've had a lot of fun. This is Frank Reynolds in New York, and we'll have a complete report on the world news tonight. Well, Frank was kind of optimistic that in 2017 we'd be a world at peace. Now, Chica, we are watching a video right now. Can you describe what's in this video? All right, this is the ABC News Washington Bureau, obviously. And it is very much an old-school newsroom. You have Frank Reynolds just working at a typewriter. Obviously hasn't had a keyboarding class, but he's working on his own material. Taking drags off his cigarettes while he's doing so. And he's just hacking, hacking away at that keyboard. Because obviously it's like 1980, and there's no such thing as Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Fun fact, there's no such thing as Mavis Beacon. I did not know this, but apparently Mavis Beacon is not real. Slightly faker than Betty Crocker. But I love this old set right here of the ABC Washington set. You have like, all these clocks right here, these TVs right on the side. And there's yeah. only four because, you know, back in that day, cable was unheard of. You only had like four different feeds, ABC, CBS, NBC, and whatever was going on on the West Coast. Because this is Washington right now. Yes. Well, didn't CNN start out in 80? Yes, it did. But I don't think everyone had CNN back then. Right? Cable was still something that you had to pay up the gut for. Mike, did you have, like, CNN back in your area? We didn't get cable till 85. Okay. Same. One of the big major news stories that Frank anchored during his coverage on World News Tonight was the eruption of Mount St. Helens back in May of... More steam and ash spouted from the mountain today, but there was nothing like the massive eruption of two days ago. However, officials have now drastically revised their estimate of the death toll from Sunday's explosion. Six persons are known dead, and late today, authorities said they believe nearly 100 are missing. The great cloud of ash from the volcano is now drifting across the Midwest and East, but not in sufficient density to cause serious problems. However, in parts of the Northwest, the impact of Mount St. Helens has been devastating. We have a series of reports tonight. First. Here is Tom Shell. 
Today, we got the first close-up look at Mount St. Helens since the massive eruption Sunday morning. This is the area that blew out. It is the slope that had been bulging for several days. The force of the blast flattened everything in its path. These logs were a forest until 8.30 a.m. Sunday. The landscape is almost colorless because of the heavy coating of volcanic ash. This is the bottom of the Tootle River, the water cut off by a 200-foot-high mud flow that acts as a natural dam. Scientists say the water will soon come over the dam, probably causing major flooding downstream. If the dam bursts, it could cause flooding at the towns of Kelso and Longview, Washington, 40 miles away, where 50,000 people live. Silt and mud that got into the Tootle River from the eruption has been carried into the Columbia River, making it too shallow for shipping. At least a dozen freighters are stranded in the ports of Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. Mount St. Helens is continuing to send up clouds of ash that are drifting to the east, dropping a heavy layer of ash over a large area. Tom Shell, ABC News, Mount St. Helens, Washington. A horrible-looking sight. That's the way President Carter described the area around Mount St. Helens today after an hour-long helicopter tour of the region. Mr. Carter said the devastation was worse than he expected to see and predicted it will take years to clean up the mess caused by last Sunday's eruption of the volcano. So the next clip I'm going to play is a promo from KTVK TV3 News out in Phoenix featuring Frank. Now, Chico, you lived in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, yeah, but I lived in the uh, Tucson market area down near Sierra Vista. Phoenix is a couple hours north, but right now, KTVK is an independent station right now. Arizona's family, they build it. But uh, the ABC affiliate would be a K... I don't remember what the calls are, but it's Channel 15 right now. KNXV! Okay, KNXV. Who owns that? Oh, Scripps. Of course, Scripps would own that. This is Frank Reynolds in Washington. Now more than ever, ABC's World News Tonight links you instantly to correspondents around the nation and the world covering events as they happen. Together with Peter Jennings in London and Max Robinson in Chicago, we give you a new perspective on the news. Watch ABC's World News tonight at 5.30, followed at 6 by Arizona's most involved news team. Together we bring you the important news of the day, here on 3. I kind of like those probos. They have, like, the news anchor there telling you all about the station. It kind of makes it feel like wherever you are in the country, it kind of makes you feel like, oh, we're important. Maybe it's just me, but Frank Reynolds there, he looked a little like Anderson Cooper. Get rid of Anderson Cooper's glasses. I see a lot of Frank Reynolds there. That's a very good point, Mike. I did not think about that yet. But yeah, there's a little uh, Anderson in there. And where did Anderson first get his start in television? ABC News. That's how he got the mole job. But the biggest moment in Frank's broadcasting career would occur on the day of March 30th, 1981, during live news coverage of the assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. Now, early reports received by the newsroom at ABC indicated that his press secretary for Reagan, James Brady, and others had been shot, but that Reagan was uninjured. However, Frank became upset when a report arrived at ABC indicating that Reagan had indeed been struck and at one point was heard shouting at an individual off screen to speak up as more information arrived. Now, 
I have the um, clip because Chico, you remember how Bennett the Oddity Archive had that episode about breaking news? I do. Uh, this was just one of the big breaking assassination stories in that block. Yes, so there's going to be a bunch of various clips here. Now, the whole thing that Ben found is no longer on YouTube, so I'm just going to post the snippets that remain because this is the best I could find from that incident that's on Ben's montage here. So this is at the 2343 mark of Ben's breaking news videos. So let me play it right here. Videotape of an incident that took place less than 15 minutes ago at the Washington Hilton Hotel when shots were fired at President Reagan. Here you see the president coming out now. You just have to watch. I don't know if we can hear this or not. Lynn Knopfsiger has told reporters at the hospital that the president was not wounded. Okay, so now we're at the clip here, and in Ben's notification here, in parentheses, says this occurred sometime between 510 and 5.30 p.m., hours after the shooting. He was wounded. My God. He was, uh, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. He was hit in the left chest, according to this, but he is in stable condition. And the typed information I have is that he is okay. Speak up. The president was hit. That was really a different time. The way Frank reacted to what he was reading, you don't see that nowadays. The way that Frank took control, telling the person on the side, speak up, he was like the quarterback of the newsroom, if you will. Yes. That was an exercise in accountability in real time. And I should note that it was a little personal for Frank because... James Brady was a close friend of Frank, and he was incorrectly reported by all the networks as having been dead in the incident. Now, I could not find the clip, but on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, when he learned the information about the report about Brady was incorrect, Reynolds appeared noticeably upset, looking around at the staffers in the background, and angrily burst out, let's get it nailed down. Somebody, let's find out. Let's get the word here. Let's get it straight so we can we can report this accurately. And one thing I should mention, the report that James Brady was, in fact, was still alive. You're not going to believe who reported this. It was Frank's son, Dean Reynolds. The same Dean Reynolds who is currently on News Nation. And also in Ben's video, I think this is like a rare case. This is like an inception sort of situation. We have a special report inside of World News Tonight. And this is October 1981. So I believe, so I believe this is around the time Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, was assassinated. Yes. In fact, this is actually the three living presidents at the time about to go to pay their respects on behalf of America to President Sadat. Yeah, so it would be the three living ex-presidents at the time, which would have been Nixon, Ford, and Carter going along with Reagan. So it would be four of the 
living presidents going to Egypt. So I'm going to play it right now. Stephen Gere, ABC News, New York. Thank you, Steve. As we mentioned earlier, three former presidents, Mr. Carter, Mr. Ford, and Mr. Nixon, are at the White House to meet with President Reagan before going on to Cairo to attend the funeral of President Sadat. And we're going to pause now to allow the rest of our stations to join us for a report on the ceremonies at the White House. This is a special report from ABC News. For many of the stations just joining us now, I'm Frank Reynolds in Washington, and President Reagan has greeted former Presidents Carter. There they are, walking to the helicopter to go to Andrews Air Force Base, three former presidents who will soon then be on their way to Cairo to pay this country's homage to Anwar el-Sadat. Well, we're going to end this special report now, and we'll resume our broadcast of World News tonight in a moment. I kind of miss the days of, like, when they would have, like, the slide for the breaking news there with, like, no music whatsoever. Nowadays, everything has to have a gigantic computer graphic. And in CBS's case, a countdown. So in early 1983, Frank was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So, Chico, do you know anything about that? That's a cancer of the blood. Frank was diagnosed with meloma while he was being treated for acute hepatitis. Back in January, Frank had injured his upper left femur in the Florida surf while on vacation and fell on it, slipping on some ice in mid-February during a snowstorm. X-rays showed a hairline fracture and Frank underwent surgery on March 17th and was diagnosed with hepatitis a month later. His last broadcast was on April 20th, 1983, and despite promises of his return by substitute anchorman on World News Tonight, Frank never returned. He dies from the hepatitis-induced liver failure on July 20th of 1983 at the age of 59 at Sibley Memorial Hospital. And that night's Nightline was dedicated to the life and times of Frank Reynolds. Ours is a relatively young industry. When Frank Reynolds began as one of its early practitioners, radio was where the stars assembled. Television was more of a technological curiosity. But during Frank's 35-year career, the impact of television has exploded to an amazing degree. A top-flight professional, Frank Reynolds cared about the truth, about fairness, and about meeting his own high standards. Nightline correspondent Jeff Greenfield traces Frank Reynolds' career as a television journalist. Good evening, and welcome to the first broadcast of the World News Tonight. Speaking for all the men and women of ABC News, I promise you an accurate, responsible, and meaningful report on events at home and abroad. We are aware of our responsibility to you, and we intend to meet it. Responsibility. In a career spanning 35 years, from a small Indiana radio station to network TV anchor, the essence of Frank Reynolds was responsibility. He took his work seriously in an era when TV anchors were supposed to be comfortable, casual, reassuring. And Reynolds remained a serious newsman in an era that saw change of the most fundamental, far-reaching sort come to the business of television news. Frank Reynolds was born 59 years ago in East Chicago, Indiana. After college and infantry service in World War II, he began work at a Hammond, Indiana radio station then moved to Chicago in 1949, where he became a pioneer in early TV journalism. His first love was sportscasting. 
Frank Reynolds was one of the best sports broadcasters I've ever heard. On a little radio station in Hammond, Indiana, he could cover any kind of a story. An emotional story, a story of poor, innocent people. Well, it's beginning to rain. This little baby, how old is the baby? A year, three months old. She might get sick out here. He showed what he felt and what was in his heart. And I think perhaps, while some might think that was a fault, I think it was his greatest asset. In 1965, Reynolds joined ABC News. It was a time when the network news operation was something of a stepchild. At that time, ABC News was about fourth in a three-network race, if you can be that low. Now, we, uh, we had a very small organization working on um, a very slim budget. By 1968, Reynolds was co-anchoring the evening news with Howard K. Smith. He was also offering sharp commentary, which did not sit well in some high circles. Don't give anybody a chance to say the old cup fighter, go for the jugular Nixon, is finally showing himself once more. Just take it easy, and above all, keep your cool. Well, that's difficult, especially when his natural instinct is to smash the enemy with a club or go after him with a meat axe. Had this slander been made by one political candidate about another, it would have been dismissed by most commentators as a partisan attack. But this attack emanated from the privileged sanctuary of a network studio and therefore had the apparent dignity of an objective statement. In December 1970, Reynolds was replaced as evening news anchor. He bade farewell to his audience with his customary candor. But I'm not going to suggest that I'm completely happy about what has happened to me. For it is also the truth that I don't like it one bit and see no reason to pretend that I do. Like most prisoners, I was put here against my will. And like most prisoners, I would prefer to pick my own time to leave. However, such matters are decided elsewhere, and I have no quarrel with the judgment that it is time for a change. But after a brief period on the fringes, Reynolds returned to the center at a time when television news was being shaken to its roots. Hi, Governor. Hi, I don't want to take away from your great moment here. Hi, Nancy. Mrs. Reagan. TV had become the center ring of American politics, where candidates for president were expected to debate each other face to face. Mr. President, when you came into office, you spoke very eloquently. The communication satellite and other technologies had collapsed national boundaries, enabling historic adversaries to meet face-to-face. -face. So that after tomorrow, your ambassadors, for example, your two ambassadors in Washington, can meet and talk? Uh, why not? Well, because they never have before. Uh, it so has never happened, yes. But I said today, we are ready. There should always be a beginning. The confines of the news studio had become as limitless as the globe. An anchor could report the news from the coal fields of West Virginia. Here in the coal fields, it is clear that something more important than three months' pay has been lost by these people. They have lost faith in their government and in the leaders of their union. Or the capitals of the world. Good evening from Versailles. This is Frank Reynolds in Jerusalem. This is Frank Reynolds in Saigon. This is Frank Reynolds with the president in Punta del Este. This is Frank Reynolds in Leningrad. This is Frank Reynolds among friends on San Rafael Street in Havana. And sometimes even the world wasn't the limit. Columbia, the space shuttle, ready to go. The first rays of the sun.
breaking now across the eastern United States. Most of the country still in darkness, but here at the Kennedy Space Center on Cape Canaveral, it is the dawn of a new day and a new era in the history of flight. Frank was the, was the person that enabled us at ABC News to develop what at first we called the floating anchor, the sub-anchor, that is the anchor who moved out from behind the desk. Anchors now, as a matter of course, are out there, whether it's uh, Sadat needing Begin or it's uh, 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 the, uh, the day uh, Jaruzelski ends martial law in Poland or, or uh, a summit uh, somewhere, anchors are on the scene. And Frank Reynolds was very much one of the innovators of that kind of work. And with the impact of instant news came dilemmas. What happens when there is no time for editorial judgment? When apparently sound information, the reported death of Press Secretary Jim Brady during a 1981 assassination attempt on President Reagan, turns out to be wrong. It's true, but we did have reports from the hospital earlier and from the White House that, uh, that he had passed away. We know that he was in very critical condition. Let's get it nailed down, somebody. Let's... <clears throat> find out. I don't apologize for, uh, for my display of uh, anger. It was anger, and it was anger directed more at myself than at anybody else, certainly, because I was, I, I really regretted that I had not insisted on further corroboration. He was not someone you could push around when, uh, when he felt that he was wrong or that the situation was not appropriate or and somehow uh, out of step. He was the first to express it as well. And that's a valuable asset, I think, in uh, journalism. And Frank encompassed all of those things. He was, at the core, a thoroughly professional reporter. Frank also had a real emotional connection with the news. He felt it. And sometimes he let that feeling show. And that's not always a bad idea. Frank has always been a get-up fighter. Uh, get knocked down, get up. <clears throat> And I guess I really expected him to get up. And this time, when he didn't get up, to say that I was shocked uh, would be an understatement. Frank was a genuine journalist. He didn't want to get in the way of the news. He wanted to report it to people. And it never occurred to him to think what he might look like or how he was lit or whether his mic was made him sound good or bad. It's one of the reasons he was such a pure journalist and one of the reasons he was such an inspiration to all of us here at ABC News. But perhaps the most impressive tribute was paid to Frank Reynolds during his lifetime by his critics. He always took the news so seriously, they said. He acted as if the weight of the world was on his shoulders, they said. Well, maybe Frank Reynolds knew what some others in this medium have forgotten, or never knew at all. That matters of life and death, war and peace, wealth and poverty are indeed serious. And so is the power and the responsibility carried by this medium. Television is the way we learn about the world now, and Frank Reynolds helped us learn about that world fairly, accurately, and responsibly. This is Jeff Greenfield for Nightline in New York. And also in the Nightline episode, after the Jeff Greenfield obituary near the end of the episode, there's this comment that Harry Reasoner gives while being interviewed by Ted Koppel that I thought was so good, I thought I'd include it here in this episode, and I think this rings very, very true. Harry, let me pick up the cudgel just a little bit. When you refer to yourself and the other fine names in the business to whom you referred, you're really talking about the best and the brightest. What I was talking about is the tendency that seems to happen in our industry, and I mean throughout the industry, to go for other qualities than those that I think are, are represented by, by Frank Reynolds. That's why I think it's so important to point. 
to those aspects of him? Well, there's absolutely no argument with pointing to those aspects of Frank Reynolds or any good journalist. But at, uh, what my point is, with no derogation of Frank, I admire tremendously. My point is that I don't think that the standards of network correspondence have descended that much. You know, you're what, 20 years younger than I am, Ted? 25 years younger? No, about 20, I guess. 20? Not, not even that much. No, I don't. I, and Tom Brokaw is 20 years younger. Charles Corral is 12 years younger. Uh, almost everybody is younger than I am these days. Frank Reynolds was. I don't see that the, uh, the dedication has deteriorated. I don't know what's happening at local news. Uh, it was Charles Corral made a speech saying that there's an awful lot of emphasis on hairspray, which you can't argue with, Ted. But I think that was because <laughs> Charles, Charles is bald and has been since he was 28. But uh, I don't think we are descending. And I, what, my point is, I don't think Frank would like to be pictured as a, the last of a vanishing breed or one of the last. Frank's funeral was held on July 24th at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington. And some of the people that spoke at his funeral were his various ABC News colleagues, Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel, and Jeff Greenfield. And also attending the funeral, and this was very classy, President Ronald Reagan. Well, it was actually reported that the Reynoldses and the Reagans were actually good friends. Yes, they had known each other quite a bit over the years. Frank was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery, and I'm sharing with you right now the, uh, the tombstone right here that reads, Frank Reynolds, Staff Sergeant, United States Army, November 29th, 1923 to July 20th, 1983, a man who cared, beloved husband and father, dedicated journalist. So even though it's been like over 40 years since his passing, I mean, he gave like life to the world news format, which is now gone on strong. It carried over with Peter Jennings for the next 20 plus years until his death and is now being held today by David Muir at ABC News show's been around 45 years and it's outlasted Frank by 40 years now and it's kind of like a big legacy. He was one of the first three at World News Tonight and it's still going strong today. It may not be as good today as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago but it is still going strong. You gotta give it that. Yes. Would you believe that Frank Reynolds has a lasting legacy? Aside from Dean Reynolds over at News Nation, obviously, but his is the voice. If you remember Paul Hardcastle's 19, his is the voice narrating that sort of documentary text that you hear. That makes sense now that you say that. I never made that connection. Yeah, in fact, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, the footage included was from ABC, some of the footage in that documentary. But ABC demanded that it be replaced, so Paul Hardcastle replaced it with stock footage. But Frank Reynolds' voice was kept on that recording. 
so that's kind of like really cool considering like he's in like a song which is pretty much probably what most people like today would know him for in a weird way they probably don't know him as an anchor but they probably know him as the like the narrator in that song well nothing else i can say but i mean 100 years and well he hasn't been with us in 40 years but frank reynolds in his 59 years with us on this earth left a very lasting legacy in television news and he was certainly a thing on TV a thing on TV who cared yes and I think that's pretty much what's missing in today's television news I don't know what to say but I mean in case you have been living under a rock the last 40 years the state of television news in this country has kind of gone down way, way low. It's all about the ad revenue now. It's not about the story. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what's missing today in television news. It's No, I don't think it's about the story. I think it's about the message. Yes. Because if the story was told the same by everybody, that's one thing. But the thing is, the way it's being presented by the different networks, they're manipulating it for their own purposes. So, yeah, it's not about the story. It's about the conveyance of the story. Well, we hope you appreciated this tribute to Frank. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. But remember, you can always go to our website over at itwasthingontv.com where you can listen to the 431 episodes that precede this episode. We've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including midi-sodes, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes. we got everything. And remember, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. And just remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you have to search for us at it was a thing on TV at tvwatch.party. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed, either at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, Audible, etc. And don't forget we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell on YouTube to be informed of all future uploads on the channel. And I promise you, I'm going to keep up with the YouTube uploads, people. I've been behind on that lately. I apologize. Just everything with Thanksgiving and work and everything. I've kind of been behind on that, but I'll get everything up to date. Don't worry. And all those uploads include what's coming up on the podcast next time. Well, guys, I think next week we got, I think these are going to be two great episodes coming up next week. Now, first episode, I want to mention, we did this because somebody, not us, but somebody we know has a birthday coming up. The birthday person requested an episode, and I'm like, I can make it happen. And it's one of those things, one of those shows, where you take a really good thing and you make a sequel out of it? Wait, they made a 
sequel to a television show? They made a sequel to a television show. It would have to be the most popular television show at the time. Manimal? Yes, Manimal. Oh, that's fantastic. No, wait. That sequel on Nightman sucked. Manimal 2 Electric Boogaloo. But the second episode. Now, Mike, I'm not one for hyperbole, but this may be, in my opinion, the most anticipated episode of this podcast ever. I think your anticipation has only come to the surface in the last, say, month to six weeks. I think if we look back even to, let's say, beginning of October, late September, you've been like, this is a blip on our radar. But over the last, again, month and a half, two months, I don't know if you've developed an appreciation for it. I don't know if you maybe have found so much stuff you want to talk about in this series but it's suddenly risen to the like the top of uh, your must-do list, and we're doing it next week. I got to say, not since Second Chance 1987 have I been looking forward to an episode as big as this. Think about that. That's three and a half years since we did that episode. I really can't believe you're so excited to do this uh, show. I'd actually say I'm surprised you're this giddy about it, but the name Giddy has taken a whole new connotation the last 24 hours. See Wanda Franco. Oh, God! Why? Now, I thought you were going to make the connection there. Oh, I didn't realize you were talking. No, that's why I didn't use the word giddy because, well, that. Oh, Here we have 45 minutes of gravitas only to end with that. Oh. But you'll find out more about those subjects in our next episode of It Was a Thing on TV. Now to close, I'm going to have Ted Koppel deliver some final thoughts about our subject today, and we'll see you next week. I'd like to offer a final personal note. Ours is not a business that promotes privacy, nor is it an industry that normally favors substance over style. And as the late Alan Sherman once wrote, television makes prisoners of us all by paying us more than we're worth. So how was it that a painfully shy, and he was that, intensely private journalist of great substance like Frank Reynolds, a man who eschewed the fast lane and the high life, how was it that he was such a success in our business? No answers tonight, but those of us charged with trying to maintain the high standards set by Frank Reynolds may learn something as we ponder the question. We'll miss him, and so will you. That's our report for now on World News Tonight. This is Frank Reynolds for ABC News. Good night from Washington.